Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Here we are in the Exodus story, and the players who are at play are familiar to us. We have three characters, really. I mean, three sets of characters. We've got God, we've got the Israelites, and we have the Mitzrim, the Egyptians. The Mikro-Ogedolo commentaries are going to focus a lot on when Mitzrim is mentioned and when Mitzrayim is mentioned. Because of the time, I included a, a beautiful long commentary in this packet about the differentiation between those two. We're not going to get into that. But it's there. It is interesting. If you think it's interesting, you're not alone, and the commentary is in there to read. But the three players are God, Israel as a nation, and Egypt as a nation. And the line goes like this. Vadonai, and as for God, Natan et chen ha'am, God gave the grace or the graciousness, the undeserved, the unearned grace of the people, be'enei Mitzrayim, in the eyes of Egypt, vayashilum, and they gave what was asked of them. Do you guys see the word she'elah buried in there? Vayashilum. Basically, they fulfilled the request. Hey, vayashilum, vayanzlu et Mitzrayim. I want to make sure not to read Mitzrayim. Et Mitzrayim. And they, they stripped the Egyptians. So what, what are they talking about here? Where are we in the story? God disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. They let them have their requests. They stripped the Egyptians. Where are we in the story? They're getting, the, they, the Israelites, are getting ready to get out of there because what has finally happened? The, well, what has finally happened to the Egyptians? The last plague has come upon the Egyptians and they are permitting Israel, specifically Pharaoh, is permitting Israel to go. And now we have the Egyptians fulfilling the request of the Israelites to get their stuff. I want to read to you from the Orachaim about what happened with this stuff. Now, the Orachaim has a question. What does it mean that they emptied, they stripped Egypt of their valuables? All of this was a result of God giving the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians lent them these trinkets against their will. Two things to pay attention to. First is lent them their trinkets. And second is against their will. When they say against their will, what they mean is against the Israelites' will. Oh, no, no, no. I don't need to take this with you. No, please. The Orachayim is painting a picture in which the slave master said, if you're going to be going out into the desert, you got to take this with you. You got to take that with you. They're painting this picture where through some sort of a godly magic, God has disposed them to give them all of these things, to lend them all of these things. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind for the end of this shiur. Okay. And... This proves that the Israelites were not prepared at that time to leave Egypt permanently, else they themselves would have asked not only for what the Egyptians volunteered, but for much more in order to enrich themselves. When the Torah writes that they emptied Egypt, the subject are the Egyptians themselves, meaning here in this verse that we were just looking at. 
from the above, we see how correct the Talmud was. Pause there. Don't read on. Just freeze right there. So you see how the Torah back in Exodus, it has us thinking that God helped the Egyptian taskmasters in that moment. They were a part of the magic of the plagues and the allowing of the release, right? They were in, they were in on the, the allowance because they had to give stuff over. They had to lend stuff over. And it seems like they were willing players in what way? Where do we see God sort of in the, in the story of the Exodus of Egypt? Where else do we see God powerfully changing emotions? Does he have a hand in that? Does God have a hand in that? Yeah, Larry. Right, hardening Pharaoh's heart. Exactly. So God, if, if, if God can harden Pharaoh's heart, surely God can do the opposite and give chayn to the Egyptians and make them see their former slaves and give them, what, what would we call this in modern parlance? Like, what, what would we name this as? If, if former taskmasters turning to their about-to-be-freed slaves and sending them off and saying, here, let me lend you this set of bedclothes and this, this gown and the, uh, this, um, you know, set of clothes. What, what would we say? Severance is a nice, that's a very interest, interesting word. Reparations might be a word that we use because we, we are using that reparative or restorative word, maybe like a restorative justice kind of a thing. Okay, very, very interesting. Rashbam goes another direction. We don't have time to go with him there. Rashbam's going to go a different direction with this. Okay, Rashbam, who is the, who's Rashbam? He's the, he's two generations below Rashi. Okay, so he's two generations later. He comes along and he says, well, the Israelites, they asked for precious jewelry and fancy garments. So he gives them a little bit more a little bit more character in this. He says, ah, oh, they came and they asked. All right, Gabrielle is going to say something and then we're going to go to our Parsha. Yeah, sure. So Gabrielle is saying, you know, if all of these people in their household seem to be the source of, they seem to be connected to the source of all these plagues, particularly that last terrible one, then maybe they would be very happy to get those things out of their home. I mean, I'll even extend it to the superstition of like, I'll, I'll do anything. Maybe if I do reparations, this evil will get out of my home, right? Maybe they felt something about that. The text itself explicitly tells us in Exodus that God came in and changed their emotional spiritual state. That's how it was experienced, according to the words of the narration of the text. That is not at all how the story is told when we get to our Parsha. I want you to flip to the first page. Let's go to the first page. If we were in uh, Pilch Hall, I'd have someone else read this out, but I'm going to read out these two lines from our Parsha. It's from the very first page. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the month. It was on the next day after the Pesach offering that the Israels set out Biyad Ramah, with a strong hand, in sight of all of Egypt. So how are the Israelites going out? Oh, look at us. We're out there. They're not sneaking off, right? They're not sneaking out in the middle of the night. They're, they're off and they're off triumphantly. The next verse says, and I like to translate this as, and as for Egypt, as for the people of Egypt, 
They were burying those who were struck down by Adonai, our Israelite God, among them, every firstborn. Whereby God executed judgment on their gods. What scene is Bamidbar painting? The vanquished Egyptians. Right, so in this, in this version, the Israelites are triumphant and the, there's something about the Egyptians that they're completely in a different emotional state. They're not present to the Israelites' triumph. There's not, even though it says it was in full sight of the Egyptians, the Egyptians are... They're somewhere else. There's something else happening. There's a completely other dynamic than what we saw back in Exodus, right? There seems to be, in this piece of the text, almost more... There's an entire sentence here telling us the story from the perspective of the Egyptian, right? Well, what were the Egyptians doing at that time? Where were the Egyptians when all the Israelites were emptying their drawers of this stuff that they used? What did they use all this stuff for, by the way, in the Midbar? We just finished the book, so you guys all know. What did we use it for? We used it for golden calf first. Good job, good job. Yeah, go Israelites. And then what else did we use it for? Building the Mishkan. Good, that was pretty good, right? That was better, right? And then eventually, ideally, we're supposed to carry on to the Beit of Mikdash. But this is all the stuff that we carried with us to do all of this building it came from this. So while they're emptying the drawers of, maybe this is where the dolphin skins come from that we always talk about when we get to Leviticus. So when they're taking all of that, where are the Egyptians? They're off sweeping up their temples and burying their sons. That's a very different picture. That's a very, very different picture than here. You know, you've been enslaved for 450 years. I think you should take these with you. It's a very different picture. Now, and the interest, yeah, right? Is it a better story or not? I, I'm really torn in reading this, whether it's a better story or not. I'll tell you that it doesn't go unnoticed in every generation of rabbinic literature. And I want to take us through a few excavated layers of the literature. I want to look first at the oldest layer. If you turn the page, just one page, and go to, oh, I wish we had time to go to the middle source, but go to the source on the back of the first page at the bottom that says Mechilta de Rabbi Yishmael, and we're going to look at Psalm 68. So in Mechilta de Rabbi Yishmael, which is a collection of Rabbi Yishmael's teachings, we're going to get a teaching from Rabbi Natan on Psalm 68, which is talking about the Exodus. It's taking a selection from the following chapter of Exodus and says, This day, Hayom Atem Yotzim Bechodesh Ha'aviv. Today you go out in the month of spring. She'en Talmud Lomar Chodesh Ha'aviv. It's not, it, it, it's, it's not teaching us that it's the month of spring. Ela Chodesh Shehu Kasher. Rather, it's a month that's kasher, kosher, fit. And then it's going to say it's not burning sun. It's not heavy rains. Rather, Aviv, it's a nice time to leave Egypt. And therefore, it's written, what is it written? That they go out, She'ain't al-Mulamar, Bakosherot. And then, um, what's the intent of kosherot? Rabbi Natan, I'm skipping down to what Rabbi Natan says, what does Bakosherot mean? Why do we say Bakosherot? Because when they left Egypt, 
This is an elision of words. The Egyptians were in Bacho. The Egyptians were crying. And the Israelites were in Sharot. They were in a place of singing and poems. Bacho Sharot. You can have a story where two people are experiencing, for example, an exodus from completely different perspectives. Bacho and Sharot. The Egyptians are weeping and we are singing. And so they see this as an acknowledgement within Psalms that both were happening, right? They're trying to keep both of these narratives potentially alive. Go to the very back page. This is, this is like a choose-your-own-adventure of, uh, of text, but I want to keep us honest about time. Go to the very back. Remember uh, just a few minutes ago, um, the Orachayim wanted us to go already to Brachot 9b, and I, I didn't let us go there just yet. In Brachot, in the Babylonian Talmud, they take up this word Vayashilum from Exodus, and they ask the question directly. The, the um, narrative voice of the Talmud asks the question directly. With regard to the spoils that were taken from Egypt, described in the verse, and the Lord gave the nation grace in the eyes of Egypt, and they gave them what they requested, this vayashilum, and they emptied Egypt, the vayinatzilu. Ravi Ami says, this teaches that the Egyptians gave them what they requested against their will but they're troubled by this their will. There's a dispute with regard to this question. Against whose will? Was it against the Israelites' will? We want to read it as against their will, meaning, oh, no, 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 we need not take your stuff, former slave master. There are some who say it was given against the will of the Egyptians. Does that make slightly more sense? Like, I don't really want to give up all of these things that are in my home to my former slaves. I'm already giving up my slave, who I considered my property, right? And, and then some say it was given against the will of Israel. Oh, I, I don't need to take anything from you. I just need to escape as fast as possible. I don't need anything on my back. And then the proponent of each position cites support for his opinion. So even our rabbis can't resolve which it was. Against whose will was it? Yeah, Cindy. So Cindy doesn't believe. I'm just going to repeat for the people who are on Zoom. Cindy doesn't, has never believed that it was the case, that the Egyptians gave all this stuff willingly. It didn't make sense there. Right, if the Israelites were refusing it, right, if the Israelites actually had not taken it, had they been offered and refused to take it, then they wouldn't have had what with them to build the golden calf, right? They would have had to figure out some other way to make the Mishkan, but they wouldn't have made other mistakes along the way. So would it have been better? Did they make a mistake by taking it? The most intriguing text that might be an answer to this question, but certainly takes us down that road comes in the form of that last Talmudic text here on, uh, from Sanhedrin. It's actually from pretty late in, in the uh, tractate of Sanhedrin, also from the Babylonian Talmud. Shuvpah, on a different occasion, the people of Egypt, this is many, 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 many generations later, the people of Egypt came to judgment, Ladun, with the people, with the Jewish people before Alexander of Macedon, of Macedonia, okay, which still exists. The Egyptian people said to Alexander, meaning they were standing each of them before Alexander as judge. It says in the Torah, and the Lord gave the people favor in the eyes of Egypt and they lent them 
And then the Egyptians said, give us the silver and gold that you took from us. You claimed that you were borrowing it and you never returned it. Here's where I wanna leave this intriguing text for us. I, like many of our rabbinic teachers for many generations, believe that there is not a wasted word in the Torah and therefore there is certainly not a wasted story in the Torah. So if we're gonna get a second telling of a story, then there must be a reason we're getting a second telling of a story. Now, I think that most of us, even if we're not educators formally, we know what it's like to try to scaffold a story, that we tell a story more simply to someone when they're either younger or newer to a story, to a country, to a tradition, to a religion. And then later, we retell a story and we add more layers of complication and nuance as it goes on. I believe in my heart that if we had one version of a story in Exodus and then another version of a story in Bob Midbar, that despite the fact that some of our commentators might say that there is no such thing as early or later in the Torah, that from the narrative perspective of the Torah, that there is a version of the story that's fitting for the Israelites as they came out of Egypt, and that there's a version of the story that they're ready to hear as they become responsible for a civilization. And I think it's up to us, wherever we're sitting, to revisit each of these stories each time we come across them in the text and remember that we're not allowed to only read one version of them. Both are present in the text and we have to be present to both perspectives at any given time. They're both alive. Both are a part of our tradition. Both are equally holy perspectives on the text and these questions go unanswered in our Talmud. So I challenge you the next time that you hear someone in your life who likes to repeat stories. We all have one of those people, maybe several in our life, who like to repeat the same stories to us. To ask yourself, is there a reason that they're sharing this story again now? And is it any different than the last time that they shared it? And rather than roll our eyes at hearing that story told again, can we hear in it something different because we are different this next time around that we're hearing it? You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to TBA. LA.org.